0: So tonight we will continue with the topic that was started last week, which is joy and various aspects of it, and the encouragement is to see joy in our practice as something that's multifaceted and and can go quite deep when it is incorporated along with a sense of how things really are, of including the suffering, the pain, um, the total picture, joy within that is something that's quite profound. So we're exploring, we first explored appreciative joy, which is also called mudita, which is feeling joy and happiness at the success and happiness of others. So we celebrate when other people have good things happen. It's actually a great way to reduce our usual self-focus where it's all about me and my happiness and whether or not I got what I needed. Somebody else has that and we can feel happiness at that it really expands our ability to be happy. And also, um, there's also the sort of more subtle sense that when we do that, we also feel the joy of not being so focused on ourselves, which is actually a, a source of joy. We don't always realize that. I should say, as a caveat, um, that... Or just a side note, that we're not, I'm not saying that practice always makes us joyful. I don't I don't think that's always true. Or that um, you're doing it wrong if you're not joyful right now. So if you're coming in and you're saying, oh no, a whole talk on joy, I had a lousy day and I'm feeling depressed. Um, that's okay. That's um, something else to, you know. To observe is when I'm feeling depressed, how is it that I relate to the topic of joy? So you don't have to be joyful right now. I'm not even saying that unending joy is the aim of the path. Um, the aim of the path is liberation, <laughs> where we um, find something deeper than anything that's conditioned. So I hope that the, that sweeps away maybe some of the... Uh, ideas you might be carrying in about joy so that we can look more carefully at this mind state and consider its role on the path, because it does have a role. So today the focus is on meditative joy and its close cousins, delight and happiness. These are the happy states that arise in a mind that is free from hindrances. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the deep states of concentration, like jhana, um, although, of course, they're very strong in that state. These states also just come in regular meditation um, whenever the mind begins to calm down. And part of what we do is we learn to attune to them. That was a little bit why I suggested during the guided meditation beginning to um, consider the ease that is felt with a mind that is just present or that just has mindfulness in it. There is a little bit of ease and peace associated with that, which some people also consider a form of joy, and that was just to help us begin to attune to that somewhat pleasant, the least neutral and possibly pleasant feeling in the mind that's there every time we're aware. It's kind of a secret ingredient in that. So I'll reiterate something I may have mentioned last time, which is that sometimes, especially near the beginning of practice, People don't necessarily feel a lot of joy in sitting. They um, either people are too busy dealing with body pain of various kinds, um, or uh, sometimes people take on the practice like a chore. You know, uh, they spend the whole time plugging away at being with the breath or bringing the mind back. You know, that's like a project that's being worked on through the whole. Sit, and it gets heavy and plodding when that's the way we're sitting. So um, where's the joy? Where's the joy if we're just focused on body pain or if we're just plugging away at some instruction? So that's that's actually countered most easily by this practice I mentioned of finding the ease and the peace just in the mindfulness. So we can say, wow, that knee is really... Sore, I don't know exactly how to deal with that. I can't remember the instruction at this moment. But the part of me that's aware of the knee pain is not actually in pain. And that part has some ease to it. It has some uh, space that feels a lot better than when I'm just absorbed in the knee pain and uh, opposed to it, feeling a lot of willfulness about wanting to get rid of it. This also gives positive feedback to our mind. If we're aware of the ease of presence, then we have positive feedback that being present is a good thing. And then that can be maybe amplified into what I'm calling meditative joy, deeper meditative joy. So let's turn to that. The word in Pali that's used for joy in meditation is piti, which is P-I-T-I. And basically it's a happy state. You know, maybe, I would guess that most people have experienced some degree of this. You've had at least one sitting in your life where you sat down and somehow the hindrances fell away, somehow things came together and there was some sense of calm and peace and ease and you, maybe if you noticed it you thought, wow, how did that happen? <laughs> maybe that pulls you right out of it, I don't know, but yeah, there's, there's that moment and it feels surprising and it feels different. We know this is a different mind than I'm usually running around with or driving with or working with or talking with this is something different and it can actually be very motivating and inspiring to feel that uh, kind of mind we can say ah this practice does have something now the danger is that we may want to repeat that and if we don't get it back immediately we think oh no i've lost it and we think it should always be like that but that's all extra Um, Just focusing on, you know, just returning attention to those times when the mind has been somewhat calm and this spontaneous happiness arose, that's really good. That's, it's just what it is. The conditions for it were there. That is a real promise of this practice. So, PT comes in a lot of different forms. There are descriptions of it in the ancient texts, so people's minds have been feeling this for a long time. It's a very common human condition, human sensation, feeling that we can have, mind state. And so it was actually described and carried through all these years so that we would know. Sometimes it's described as a tingling through the body, it can also be felt as energy flow through the body or the mind. It's often felt most strongly in the body, PT. It can be um, waves of sensation that go through the body. Um, it can be your hair standing on end. That's an interesting one is when you get this kind of prickly feeling on the surface of the skin or in the, on the scalp. It's a form of PT. Or even a showering of intense pleasure. My teacher describes a time when he was on retreat. This can even occur, I guess, outside of meditation if you're on retreat. And he had been um, having fairly concentrated mind during his sittings, and he got to lunch, and he found that um, when he picked up his fork and brought it toward his mouth, he would get this wave of pleasure through his body, and he'd have to put the fork down. And then he would try again, and he'd be like... His mind would kind of delight um, spontaneously. He said it was a little intense, actually. I mean, it eventually changed, and he was able to eat. But it's it's interesting what what PD can do when we're open to it. I think I'll add for completeness that there are also um, energetic states in the body that happen through practice that are called in other traditions they're called kriyas, which is basically energy being released from the mind-body system. I don't know how else to say it, but, you know, when we've had certain experiences or um, developed certain habits in our body, uh, we tend to have tensions associated with that, or certain things basically locked in the mind-body system. And when we sit, when we get calm and quiet, and we know that we're in a still safe environment, those actually come up to the surface and they can start to be felt and expressed. And sometimes you'll see people um, shaking, for example. A hand will shake or the body will shake or sway. And this is just the energy being released of these patterns. Sometimes it can be quite intense on the inside. You You just see them shaking on the outside, but who knows what they're going through. These kinds of energy phenomena... Mm, are not explicitly described in the Buddhist teachings. I think it's a little bit of a gap, actually, in my opinion, um, although it may be that at the time they were so well known and understood through Ayurvedic medicine and other things that you know, the Buddha didn't feel it necessary to talk about them. Um, if they are mentioned, they're lumped into PT as forms of... But these are odd things to call joy. Sometimes these experiences are quite intense or even unpleasant. So I would, I'd say in my mind that there's some distinction between these things called kriyas and between piti. Also differences in how to work with it. But the focus here is more on the, on the piti. Mature and balanced piti is, actually leads to tranquility. It's a form of joy that when it becomes stronger, the mind becomes calmer. So this is a clue that PT is not the same as maybe everyday excitement that we might call joy. Oh, I was overjoyed to hear that such and such was true, and the mind leaps up, and we're sort of going away from tranquility. So imagine a kind of joy that comes through the body, feels very refreshing, and as you experience it more and more, the mind settles and actually becomes more tranquil through that. That is more meditative joy. You might reflect for a moment, actually, if you know know that feeling. So we can ask what are the conditions for this to come about? It's not magic. There are, you know, it's not a divine granting that this happens to you. There are actually conditions that can be cultivated. One of them, an important one, is uh, what's called seclusion. And in a very straightforward sense, uh, it's supportive of meditative calm to seclude the body in a quiet and still and relaxed calm place. So, you know, we know that... um, in the middle of a rock concert is probably not a good time to aim for deep concentration. Some people could probably do it, (laughs) but it's better for most of us to go to a quiet room, uh, close the door, uh, have some kind of a simple, beautiful place to sit, comfortable, temperatures about right, um, and have some time when our phone isn't turned on, for example. So... This is secluding the body, in a sense. is getting ourselves into a conducive atmosphere for practice. And then, maybe more importantly, actually, is secluding the mind. And this can take more time to develop in our practice. But there are are these things called hindrances, and they're hindrances to concentration, to to stability of mind. And there are traditionally five of them, and I'll just name them. We won't talk about them too much tonight, but they are sensual desire, wanting something, ill will, not wanting something, or being irritated with someone, restlessness and worry, the next two are about energy. So restlessness and worry, being agitated and over-energized, sloth and torpor, being dull, fading, fading mind, and then the fifth is doubt. So these five um, have a way of coming into the mind and stirring it up, basically, not allowing it to settle, like the glass jar that you keep shaking up, it's all muddy never let it sit down and let the water clear so this is what we practice and there's many many practices for addressing these five hindrances as well as you know, other challenges that come through meditation and that's so you can take heart so that there are so many practices offered precisely because these are real issues for people and have been for thousands of years so this is not a problem if you sit down and your mind is filled with ill will or filled with anxiety or restlessness in some way, or you're falling asleep. Very common. But I can say that if those things are present, it's unlikely that the mind will settle into a state of calm and have some genuine piti, meditative joy. It's not that we're necessarily going to have to totally dismiss the world in order to experience this. So I want to, to tell also the story of a monk whose name was Elder. It's talked about in the discourses. This monk named Elder uh, was one who practiced alone. And he spoke, he said that he practiced alone and spoke in praise of practicing alone. And he spoke about how wonderful it was to be secluded and that this was very important for practice. And the Buddha found out that this is what this monk was proclaiming. and. He called the monk to him and said, Is it true that you practice alone and speak in praise of practicing alone? And he said, Yes, I do. And the monk said, Oh, but how do you do that? And he said, Well, I get up alone, I go on alms round alone, I eat alone, I practice all afternoon alone, and then I go to bed alone. This is how I practice in seclusion And the Buddha said, well, I don't disagree that that's a good way to practice, but he said that, um, I'll paraphrase, he said that uh, secluding the mind was more important than just doing everything alone. And I can understand this, in that if you are just doing everything alone, You could be doing that with a mind that's full of ill-will or that's full of desire or that's um, constantly thinking about something else, distracted. Even though we look like we're secluded, we're doing everything alone. uh, It really matters more how the mind is. And conversely, one of the arts of practice is sometimes that we're learning how to do things alone with others. And so can we be secluded in mind even though we're we're with other people? For example, right now, there's a whole bunch of people standing outside the door waiting to go into the restaurant, and some of them are smoking, and I can smell the smoke coming in through the room. So this is input coming into our bodies and our minds, and we have some ability through practice to be secluded from that. Can you understand what it would mean to not be overcome by those external stimuli? There's a number of ways to do this. One of them is to bring very clear attention to those sensations coming in and just know, okay, this is what's happening. I'm not going to let it run away in the background with me not paying attention and probably it'll stir up irritation or something else. Another thing we can do is we can apply wisdom. I would say that this is a temporary situation, and I guarantee you that it's not going to last forever. So, various ways of secluding ourselves. (laughs) We can learn to count at the same time. Humor is also important. So actually, I can feel a little bit of joy, right? They've realized that the kids were getting agitated, and now they're maybe organizing an activity to keep them occupied during the time. Well, that's pretty clever. You know, that's a good thing to do when you've got a bunch of people together who might be agitated waiting for a restaurant. So seclusion It's a good example. And then another... Um, you know another factor that influences whether or not we can experience this PT, this meditative joy is bringing real dedication and energy into what we're doing in our practice. So there's a theory, there's a, a set of qualities called the factors of awakening. And the first one is mindfulness. So that's where we start. But it in, its it then induces investigation, the second. And then energy is the third, which becomes like a dedication. You know, I'm definitely committed to this practice. It's something that I care about. I've seen enough through investigation that I'm inspired. And the result of energy is joy. That's the next step among this set of seven. It's also called joyful interest. So we become interested in how to meet this moment, become interested in the object of our meditation, which could be anything from screaming voices to the sensations of the breath. And then it goes from there, the next one after joy. I'll give you one guess. Tranquility. Remember I said that meditative joy leads to tranquility. So... Seclusion and also dedication are factors that help bring about the mind into a state of calmness that produces this kind of meditative joy. Do you feel the tranquility of the noise having ended? Sound Yeah. feel a little bit of joy just from that. (laughs) Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about concentration. Uh... So this is a quality of samadhi, is what it's called in Pali. And this could also, concentration sometimes we think of focusing the mind like a laser. And people who sit down and try to concentrate end up with minds that are focused like a laser and very brittle (laughs) and not very joyful. So maybe a better translation of concentration or samadhi, better translation of samadhi, would be composure. So a mind that is composed, it's calm, it's balanced, it's poised, relaxed. These are much more the qualities of samadhi. And samadhi can be experienced through just creating these conditions that I talked about earlier. The mind can settle into a calm, happy state. And there are in particular five qualities that start coming forth when the mind develop samadhi. I'll name them because you'll recognize one. The first two are related to, actually they're types of thought, of ways of directing the mind. They're called vitaka and vichara. And the vitaka means the connecting of the mind with the object. So like when you sit down, it's not anything obscure. You sit down, you intend to feel the breath, and you notice it passing through the nose and the throat and the lungs. Now, vitaka, you've connected with the object. Vichara is the ability to stay with that. And we know that those are different, right? Because it's possible to connect, but then whoosh, the mind might just slip right off. Or it's also possible to connect and stay with it. One of the images, I'm looking at this bell, one of the images for vitaka and vichara is that vitaka is contacting the bell and vichara is polishing it. So we you know, rub against the object, if you will. I think another nice analogy that my teacher sometimes uses is petting a cat. So you um, first you touch the cat, but then you don't just you know kind of stick your hand on the cat, right? You stroke the cat. Pet the cat. Very nice. And then the result of that, of course, is that the cat starts purring, and that would be piti and sukha, which are the... Um, qualities of joy and happiness that come from being in continual contact, fairly continual. I'm not saying it has to be totally complete. But, you know, basically staying with the object for a while, the mind naturally starts to feel happy. Why? Because the hindrances aren't there. It's just doing its thing. And then the fifth quality, I said there were five, is a kāgata, which is one-pointedness of mind. And these factors, the connecting with the object, staying with it, feeling joy, usually in the body, feeling happiness in the mind, and having this one-pointed attention, when those become very strong, they result in a series of states called the jhanas. That are very deep states of meditative absorption, and these are possible. They're not—they're um, not something that you could only do in India when you were sitting in a cave 2,600 years ago. But they're not for everyone. So I don't—you know—I don't want to induce a sense of desire or shame or if you haven't or whatever. But I, I want to share them because the images. I'll read the images that go with them. They tell us something about this quality of meditative joy, which gets very strong in the jhanas, at least the first three of them. So, this is one for what's called the first level of jhana. Quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, that's seclusion of body, seclusion of mind, The practitioner enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. So that's Vitaka and Vichara. She permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from seclusion. Here's the image. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water, so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the practitioner permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. So it's kind of unusual language, and I know we don't use bath powder, so You could imagine flour, for example, that we put water in and we knead it into dough, right? And you want the dough to hold together, so you have to put enough water in, but you don't want to get it all... Dough can get mushy, actually, and sticky. So you get just the right amount that it holds together but isn't mushy. And this image is what is done throughout the body. It says, this suffuses and fills this very body with rapture and pleasure. So imagine that you're feeling secluded, you've got the mind somewhat calm, and then there's this um, joy and ease that arises from that, this early stage PT. And then the instruction is to fill your whole body with it. That's fantastic. And so you feel, oh, into my head, my arms, through my belly, through the legs. Not, You know, not in a kind of over-eager, desirous way, but just allowing that, suffusing it. Each time I do it on the breath, each time I breathe, I imagine the air flowing to every little crack and crevice through my body. And it's lovely um, when, when those conditions come about. And then, if the mind continues, it actually drops. The vitaka and the vichara. It drops the need to connect, the need to actively stay connected to the object because the mind is so convinced that the object is worthwhile, it, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> so then you get this image. Just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from the east, west, north, or south, and with the skies supplying abundant showers time and again. So that the cool fount of water welling up from within the lake would permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill it with cool water, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters. Even so, the practitioner permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of composure. So it's no longer born of seclusion, now it's born of concentration itself. And the image, again it's unusual language, but I'll just translate The image is a lake that has uh, an internal well and the well is bubbling up through the lake supplying cool water and in that same way what's being pointed to is a kind of joy that doesn't come from external pleasure. Normally we think of joy as coming from I got my favorite meal, I met my partner at the airport and it was great to see them, I Helped my child learn to ride a bike, whatever it was. But it was something external. And this is something that comes entirely from within. And you have this strong sense of, wow, this is really pure. You know, it's really internally generated. Now, it's still conditioned. This is not liberation, but, you know, it's conditioned by being able to sit in concentration, which doesn't happen 24 7. But still, it gives a taste of what it's like to have well-being come from within. It's important. And then I'll just mention the others. Um, actually, when we get to the third jhana, the pt fades. It gets a little too strong to feel that much joy, and it's it's a good image because the pt kind of this is when the pt kind of feels like flowing through the body. Um, And then it starts feeling like, this is a little much, uh, and the mind will naturally still, even further, still itself more. The PT fades, and we're left just with the sukha, which is mental happiness. So we're left with a much calmer ease in the mind. And the image for that is um, lotuses that have grown up in a pond. And sometimes lotuses break through the surface, but some of them actually spend their whole life underwater. And so this is about an underwater lotus, And the pond doesn't have this well anymore. It's actually perfectly still. And the lotus is standing in the water, completely covered all over with water that's very still and cool. And so all that rough joy (laughs) is gone, and there's just this deep happiness that, again, pervades and suffuses and fills the whole body and mind. And then, interestingly, there's only, there are four jhanas. So interestingly, that becomes a little bit more than what the mind really wants. And, and it settles even more into a state that's like being covered from head to foot with a white cloth, so that there's no part of the body that's not covered with a white cloth, like as if this shawl were white and completely covering the whole body. That's the fourth jhana, and by then uh, it's just pure equanimity. That's the um, mind state. The mental tone of it is equanimity. So these possibilities help the mind learn how to let go, essentially. Sometimes if these things happen to people, um, they start thinking, oh, this is it. You know, I've got it. This is the thing. Is to just keep repeating this experience again and again. But I'll mention that the Buddha the very before he was the Buddha uh, when he was a practitioner, the very first thing that he did was he went and he learned jhana from two masters. he didn't learn these ones the first four at least we don't know what we don't know if he learned those. We know for sure that he learned the higher jhanas there are other ones that are not um, they're called basi, bases of um, higher jhanas that are not uh, these four they're Uh, become formless, they no longer have a sense of the body. And he learned those first, and he realized, this is great, you know, it's great to have my mind kind of elevated in supreme bliss and equanimity, but it doesn't end my suffering when I get off the cushion. (laughs) So he understood that this is not the aim. But he did figure out that allowing the mind to go through these stages of concentration is a good thing in that the mind practices letting go. You have to let go of all the external stuff, all those five hindrances in order to settle on the body, even to get to the first jhana. And then you let go of stuff that's good, right? You let go of staying with the object, you let go of joy, you let go of happiness. So the mind um, really learns to find the most stable state that it can. And from there, it has a purpose. You see better. That's that's what the Buddha. That was the brilliance of the Buddha, in figuring out that a very stable mind can be used to see, and to gain insight into how to let go of suffering. That's the purpose of meditative joy and concentration, is to get the mind to where it can see very well.
1: I'll add that another.
0: Aim, you know, another, what should I say, reason for cultivating meditative joy is that having a basis in the body and mind of well-being, which is another way to describe this in some ways, a very deep sense of well-being, is what helps us understand about suffering. So sometimes people think, ah, the joy, the well-being... That's what I want. As soon as I gain some access to it, I'm just going to be done with all this dukkha stuff. I'm I'm in it for the bliss. Uh, It's very tempting. But actually, um, cultivation of well-being and having a very deep sense of well-being is a great foundation for being able to look deeply at suffering because it won't pull us in, it won't sway us. My teacher talks about a time when he was on a long retreat, a very long retreat, and he was in the state of very deep bliss and joy and was just walking around and everything felt wonderful. And he had a sudden insight that in his own mind he realized that any thought that, that entered his mind in that very deep, pure, joyful state was going to be a little bit of friction in his mind, going to be a little bit of suffering to have any kind of a conceptual thought And then he suddenly, his mind opened, and he suddenly realized how caught up in thought the whole world is. And it struck him how much suffering there is from having so much rampant thought. And he he never could have fathomed that or taken it in. I mean, he really felt in his body the vast amount of suffering in the world that comes from our thoughts. And he couldn't have done that if he didn't have that basis of well-being from all that retreat that he had done up to that point. So the deep happiness that comes from concentration or from even just sitting and having a pretty calm sit, that happiness is a basis for having good insight into suffering, which is what freed the Buddha's mind. So we're going to have to look at that at some point. The Four Noble Truths are about suffering and the end of suffering. So joy does happen in practice through sitting, through the cultivation of well-being, through the, just the natural development of the mind. It's I don't know that it's there 100% of the time. It's conditioned, so it can come and go. If you've never had any joy in your practice or if you've hit a dry spot and haven't had any joy for a long time, it can be helpful to talk with a teacher. Uh, there are the practices that we do should help the mind let go of um, some of its difficulties. Maybe that you haven't looked carefully enough. I've had periods of depression during my practice, but I have to say that even when I was depressed, it wasn't 24-7. You know, There were moments of joy, times of joy within that. So sometimes that's what's going on. But joy is an important part of the path. And I've talked about it mostly in terms of sitting or calming the mind in practice today, but next week I'm going to go into joy just in having a path, joy in the practice itself and some of the uh, conditions in our everyday life that bring about that kind of joy, the joy of practice. Are there further thoughts or questions about um, this topic or about your practice tonight? Right. Mm-hmm. Could you just kind of review the five, you talked about the, the qualities, connection with, an example was the breath, to stay with it, one-pointedness, joy, what was the fourth? Um, happiness. Happiness. Sukha. So that's more mental happiness. The joy is more bodily delight. But they—they they, sometimes in Asia they call them piti sukha. So it's uh, clearly they're related qualities. Yeah. Much of what you described this evening reminded me of the joys I get from. Hiking and backpacking, Mm -hmm. yeah, and I don't know how to compare that to a meditative practice. You know, yeah, there's probably some parallels, but I'm like, oh, this this sounds really familiar, but it's different. This is a great comment because many of us have experienced, um, you know, there's various. I guess in psychology they now call it flow, or just you know the the ease and joy of. Playing a sport, doing a craft, getting absorbed in an art project—many, many things. This is um, th- this is an important state for the mind to get into for a lot of people. People feel driven to move toward things that give us that kind of feeling, and it's similar in that what the mind has let go of distraction, right? That's what feels good, is that we're not running in ten different directions, worried about the future, concerned about the past. It's just the present moment. And this is a capability of the mind. Actually, concentration, or samadhi, is one of what's called the five faculties of mind, which, that's a fancy-sounding word, but all it means is qualities that the mind has that enable it to learn things. And these are fundamental qualities of mind that everybody has. Um, and concentration is one of them, the ability to focus the mind. Everybody has, except maybe a few extreme cases. But even people with ADHD and such can have moments of times of that. And so what the difference? So that's the similarity, is that this is something that all people can have. That's why I confidently say, don't worry, it can happen in your practice. Um, the difference is in the intention. So the intention of hiking or playing basketball or doing sculpture or whatever it is may not be liberation from suffering. That may not be what's driving us or opening of the heart or purification of the mind. So it does matter what context we're doing it in. It's definitely not... You know, it's not unskillful to have that kind of joy while hiking. And if you do, please, you know, you know, appreciate it and take it into the system because it's very nourishing. But, of course, one could be very concentrated, like a thief might be very concentrated on picking a lock. And it might have that same degree, but it's not a wholesome activity necessarily. So it can. there's a whole wide range of why we're doing something that concentrates the mind. So... I think there, you know, at at sort of a general level, there isn't a difference in the maybe in the feeling that it would evoke, but the aim um, of cultivating the mind and ultimately wanting to see things as they are, have an insight that will lead to liberation, uh, affects how it unfolds, and so these jhanas that I described um, will have a slight, a, a somewhat different feeling to them than hiking just because it has a different aim. But when I talk in general terms like this, you can recognize the language. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time, um, someone was describing to Shiloh Catherine, who's another another teacher in this area. She was taught, Shiloh was, Shiloh's actually a big concentration practice, practitioner. She's done a lot of work with Powak Sahada, who's a, a master of this. And so she was describing something similar. She was describing states of meditative concentration. And this woman raised her hand and said, this is just what we get into, what I was getting into last week when I was working on the floor plan for the new um, church that I, that's, you know, that's being built that I'm a member of. She's a simultaneous Christian and Buddhist. And she said, I got so focused on it and it felt so great and I was really in the flow. <laughs> and Shiloh looked at her very dryly and said, um, well... The only difference between them is that one of them leads to a great floor plan and one of them leads to liberation from suffering. (laughs) But it's okay to have a great floor plan and feel good while you're doing it too. And In fact, I think it probably increases the mind's potential for being able to do that during meditation if you're familiar with that in other forms of life. So I encourage... People to have skills that they really develop if you have an art or a craft or a sport, uh, it's good to cultivate that. It supports practice. You reminded me of an experience I had many, many years ago. I was learning to become a whitewater raft guide. I had struggled with trying to figure it out for ten days and just like... And then and then one day it just worked. Right but when you stop thinking. I had this point where I went I went to my teacher who was in the boat, and I said, There's something wrong, I'm not thinking about it anymore. And she looked at me and she said, That's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's like that. And when we Spend a lot of time, I'm sure many of us know from experience, you spend a lot of time thinking about your practice and sitting there in meditation. Okay, am I calm enough? Was I mindful enough? It's like that's a whole different experience than those times when we just happen to sit down and we're not concerned about doing it right and somehow the practice flows. So we learn through trial and error how to do that and through practice. You know, you, had to, you maybe had to go through ten days. You do have to think at the beginning because it's not familiar. You're learning something new. And then, as soon as you master that, you have to learn something new. (laughs) That's how practice unfolds. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit